welcome everybody by this first um, episode uh, of the podcast and I have three amazing guests but before I start with the introdu introduction and, and introducing you I'm going to share a little bit about myself so my name is Josephine van Marle I'm a program manager of ECHO Center for Diversity Policy uh, and I'm really happy to be able to invite you here at the ECHO office good uh, good to have you over Thank you for having us here. Thank you, yeah. <laughs> Excited to be here. Yeah. Awesome. All right, so maybe um, can I ask you to uh, introduce yourselves before we uh, head over to the, the topic of today? Can I start with you? Yes. Um, hi, my name is Glenford, or Glenn. I am a student and researcher. Uh, I work at the Center of Expertise Global and Inclusive Learning at the Hague University. Um, and what's, I guess, kind of special and unique about the way that we work is we work with a bunch of students um, in an approach we call the student-led method, where we really take um, the students' experiences, their life histories, their identities, their talents, and use that to design or um, build education around rather than just have a curriculum where students come in and kind of follow it, really take make it such a more personal um, experience for students that is much more meaningful and impactful in their educational track. Yeah, awesome. All right, so the Hague University is represented here. <laughs> cool. The Netherlands is here, obviously. Jasmine, can I ask you to also uh, share with us uh, who you are and why you're here? Absolutely. So, hello, my name is Yasmin Algahari. My pronouns are she, her, and hers. Um, I'm a current PhD student, I would say second year PhD student at the University of Connecticut um, back in the United States. And I am a graduate assistant within the global education program that the University of Connecticut offers. Um, I am here because this work is important. I think that there's so many um, chances that we don't get to see what other institutions outside of the United States are doing to support their students, and I mean like fully support them um, in their development and their transition into the university. So to be able to share my experience and hear other people's experience and their knowledge is a very humbling, um, as well as of a privilege to be here. Awesome. Really nice that you're here and all the way from the United States, University of Connecticut also represented and then we have one speaker, but definitely not last. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is Abdi Ahmed, pronounced he, him, his, and I'm from the United Kingdom, so not too far away. And I s studied in Nottingham at the University of Nottingham, where I did my bachelor's and my postgraduate education there. And then I spent two years working in the Students' Union as a postgraduate officer, uh, which also had an element of looking at uh, diversity and inclusion with it as well. And now I'm working at the university with widening participation, which yeah. is looking at specifically uh, people of color from disadvantaged backgrounds, uh, what we can do to further support them at higher education institution at the University of Nottingham. Awesome. All right. Perfect. Uh, so as you can tell, uh, we have a very, you know, a, a, a kind of multi-perspective on diversity and inclusion, look at equity. You know, we, we speak about those topics often, um, but I think it's also very important to kind of have your reflections on, uh, on a different topic that I want to discuss with you. Um, and that is the topic of um, Islamophobia. 
And you have been here for a couple of days. We have had different sessions. Um, and um, I hear that it has been a very uh, important topic that you've discussed yesterday as part of the program. And I just wanted to ask you, um, basically, when we talk about Islamophobia, and specifically also for our listeners, what is important? What is Islamophobia to begin with? Um, and why is it important that we have those conversations in these spaces with people from different parts of the world? Uh, Jasmine, can I maybe start with you um, in answering that question? Sure. Um, <laughs> I think it's... Um you know, important to have this conversation because I think there's a lot of assumption that Islam is like a nationality and rather than a faith that's being followed and practiced by over a billion of people worldwide, you know, that come from different walks of life, different ethnicity, different low, uh, socioeconomic background, different educational levels. So I think that oftentimes the way Islam is introduced to people is, is, is something to be feared of or that is different or that it's out of the norm. Um, and again, and it's, you know, it's a religion and it's one of the, the other Abrahamic faith, you know, including Christianity and Judaism. So I think it's important to be here to shed light that it's not just one thing and it's not that um and it's often you know when we hear about it the voices that get heard is the voices of policymakers, it's the voices of media pundits and you don't get to hear it from muslim folks um so i think yeah 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 and to kind of have those uh, conversations about what what is islamophobia and how does it impact your life as um, someone that is being part of the Islamic or Muslim community, right? Okay, beautiful. All right, and, and Glenn, um, do you have an addition to this? Is this the same perspective for you or do you feel that there's another reason for you why it's important to have those conversations in these types of spaces about Islamophobia? I think... Um Speaking specifically from the Dutch context, it is especially important as, you know, we have a growing uh, Muslim community in the Netherlands and also with globalization, you know, more and more communities are becoming intermixed and you can, you will be exposed to it. And I think it's important to understand what you're exposed to and what that means mm -hmm. and to also get the full story and the full picture. Um, obviously, as Yasmin said, the Muslim community is not a monolith and I think People are still so deeply, um, there's this deeply ingrained image, which is a very um, reductive and uh, erroneous image of uh, Muslim people that still lives among um, the Dutch consciousness still that really needs to be kind of people need to be disabused of. Um, so I think it's important to share these kind of perspectives and story to show that it is not only extremely diverse, but also just another religion, like Yasmin said. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's often, uh, oftentimes kind of portrayed as something else, right? Then it's, um, it's also uh, being portrayed as something that we need to be fearful of, if I, if I kind of hear you correctly. Yeah. All right. And Abdi, and what about your uh, perspective on this? Why is it important to have this conversation together? I think if you can't have open conversations about things like this, a couple of things happen. Number one, people will continue, those that already do have 
a negative reinforced stereotype, uh, whichever reason that may be, will continue to hold those thoughts because there will be no education on, on those thoughts to change. Um, and another part is you will, you know, there are many young people out there who don't have the motivation of looking at senior people in senior positions to openly express their religion. Um, and what example does that set for them when they try to go into these positions as well? Um, so it's all about having not just uh, champions of change, but also not being afraid that it's your religion. You know, in many other religions, people aren't afraid to express their religion, express that this is who they are, it's part of their identity. But unfortunately, due to many different narratives, uh, there is almost a certain shame um, that some people hide that uh, parts of their religion or their religion altogether uh, because of the negative stereotypes that have been enforced and because what they may believe other people will think. And a large part of that, sadly, is subject to um, even little things that we see. Uh, for example, when we look at uh, entertainment in terms of TV shows and movies, and we look at how uh, Muslims are portrayed on there, you know, things like that. Imagine you're a young person watching a movie, and this is the first thing you're exposed to when you hear about the religion. What kind of negative stereotypes that perpetuate um, all the way throughout to the media and many or con many more contexts as well. So I think having these open conversations, not just between people for understanding, mm -hmm. but also uh, within institutions, within um, businesses, within uh, on a national scale and on a global scale is incredibly important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I also realize that we are here in this moment, right, for, with three speakers, right? You are here also discussing the topic of Islamophobia, which also means that this is something that we see back in all of our countries, mm -hmm. right? What I'm also curious to hear from you is um, related to the conversation that you had yesterday, but mainly focusing on, are there differences that you would highlight or things? Um, because if this is a trend that we see, right? Um, that we have in common. Does that also mean that the way that Islamophobia is basically part of our societies, is that the same way or do you see distinctions in that? And, and what are those distinctions maybe? Uh, who would like to uh, share with me about this? Or is this something that you may have not discussed yesterday? That's also a possibility. Um, not explicitly, but I think first and foremost, the obvious um, commonality is, is that Islamophobia is a really huge acute issue in all of our different contexts. Um, speaking from the Dutch context specifically, I think because we have um, a lot of, at this point, um, uh, people who are generations down in the Netherlands and based in the Netherlands, when we look at uh, questions of identity um, and Dutch identity and what that means, um, still there isn't really space for anything that is not um, non anything that is not Christian or not white mm. or deviates from that um, and that kind of still perpetuates um, these false these misconceptions that we have but also kind of pushes people to the margins and I think there yeah I, I don't know if someone else can yeah. <laughs> fill me in I um, I, I think it's interesting um, mm. I think it's really interesting what you say, speaking from the Dutch context, you know, there is also uh, almost 
um, a discussion and debate about what national identity means and what Dutch national identity means, right? Mm -hmm. And we see in the political debate about this, and to some extent that also um, means talking about it in the public context, is that uh, the Muslim identity or religion is not really, you know, um, made into a connection with this national identity, which means that to some extent, uh, Muslim communities are othered by making making them less um, uh, Dutch to some extent. And is this something, especially in the context of the UK and the United States, diversity is to some extent also something that is celebrated, right? Uh, so I'm also curious to hear your thoughts on this. Is this something that you also recognize? Um, Jasmine, can I maybe start with you and then Abdi of course. Uh, ask the same question? Yeah, of course. And I'm so glad that you brought that point up because I think for me, um, in my own experience, so I, my family and I immigrated to the U.S. two years prior to 9-11 happen. Mm. And I think for a long period of my development, I, you know, there's always this, these different images and people pretending that Islam is not part of America and you can't be an American and be Muslim. And I think it was, it, it really took me until my graduate education when I finally decided I wanted to do research on on me and mm -hmm. what does it mean to be a Muslim what does being a Muslim in the U.S. context uh, look like is it new um, is it foreign and one of the things that was really interesting that I discovered is that 30 over actually over 30 percent of uh, slaves that came to the U.S. were Muslims and had their identities and religious beliefs erased because they had to adapt to white Christian um, settler colonial uh, way of living. So it, it's it's not foreign. It's something that's always been there as long as slavery has been part of the American fabric. It's just we don't talk about it and we don't acknowledge it in history books. So to me, it was important to understand that like people that had shared the same faith that was part of the country's fabric. And it's not new, but there's deeper structural issues and political issues that have turned Islam into something being foreign and different. Mm -hmm. And I think scratching the surface of knowing why and how to change it um, became really kind of like my mission, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So also having that research perspective and showing that, you know, the idea of um, Muslims coming to or being part of uh, the United States to begin with um, is, is, is to some extent an idea that's not really correct, right? So it, you have always been there as part of um, the community and, and being part, you were also part of that um, building of the United States in that sense. It's interesting to, to hear that in, in your um, reflection. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Abdi. Yeah, so in the UK, we have a very huge uh, Muslim population. And I think one of the, it's one of the, one of the things that makes the UK great in terms of the, you know, the amount of diversity that there is there, not just in terms of the Muslim population, but the amount of uh, different religions that we have. But obviously that also comes um, with its problems. And one of the reasons, uh, one, one of the things that's quite troubling is the actually recognizing Islamophobia. You know, I think in certain places, in certain institutions, um, in certain countries, 
there is almost a in denial that Islamophobia exists and, and it's a thing. And I think one of the first things that we have to do when we talk about this is actually admit that it is a thing. Mm-hmm. It is a thing that happens. It is very real. It's very visceral for those who are experiencing it. And it happens in many forms of our society, but in the context that we're talking about here within higher education, it is also something that is prevalent within higher education in the university, uh, in many universities uh, among the country. And there's many reports that also uh, further strengthen that argument that says universities are simply not doing enough to tackle Islamophobia on a national scale in the, univers- uh, in, in, in the university context uh, in the UK. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it's, it's also kind of a way of dealing with, on the one hand, reality, right? And seeing and acknowledging, if I understand you correctly, um, in that Islamophobia is a reality. It's part of our society. It's also what I hear in your conversation, uh, Glenn. It's kind of acknowledging that the way that it's part of reality is, on the one hand, not acknowledged, but it is um, even maybe to some extent even made worse by doing that, right? Because uh, it's created this image that is um, uh, kind of reinforcing those stereotypes that are part of Islamophobia as well. And also the acknowledgement of you, Jasmine, that um, in the the, the context of the United States, um, Muslim communities have been there for a longer period of time than um, to some extent a lot of people would like to admit. Right. All right. So if we talk about, for example, um, battling Islamophobia, right? And if we talk about those uh, interventions that we develop in light of diversity and inclusion, I also hear the reflection um, that there's not really a lot of room to, um, and there's not a lot of room that is being created also to, Um, diverse communities to be able to flourish, right? Um, What do you think is necessary uh, that we're currently not doing, for example, uh, in the Dutch context or the United States or the context of the UK that we need to address and need to do to battle uh, Islamophobia? Who would like to help me with that question? I can go first with this one. So within, within the UK, one of the things that we have to look through when we think about Islamophobia is also what we can do to prevent it from happening, but also after it's happened, how do we report such such things? Uh, many of these statistics that you may see within the UK or even around the world, really, when it looks at the amount of people that have reported uh, incidents for Islamophobia, It is not a true indicative number because there are many people, as we know, who simply won't come forward um, out of being afraid that they may be identified uh, or simply because the reporting mechanisms for such things aren't properly instilled within the um, mechanics of other institutions or um, businesses or, or whichever facet they may be a part of. And I think one of the big issues that we have to look at is the reporting mechanisms of, first of all, how we report this. Is it clear how you can report it? Is it anonymized so it doesn't make sure that you're not directly um, identified with this information that you have put forward? And also, will action be taken as a consequence of this in terms of it being treated as a hate crime, which is what it should be, because it is, you know, it is a hate crime based on somebody's religion. Um, So that's the first thing. In terms of within the higher institutional context of what universities can do, so 
First of all, uh, I don't know how it works in other countries, but within the United Kingdom, we've got these uh, Islamophobia Awareness Month or an Awareness Weeks. So we have certain times of the year where they not uh, not only celebrate um, everything to do with um, the religion of Islam um, and also all the um, you know people uh, within the context who have made very good um, strides in society for for justice. Um, for people who have achieved amazing things within that um, and also just a beautiful awareness about the religion and, and all of its teachings um, but also about things that people can do to become more aware about the religion itself because one of the biggest things that we have in, in life really is when there is a misunderstanding um, that misunderstanding can sometimes turn into fear mm. and that fear then sometimes is then used to judge and have perpetuate bad stereotypes and that's how sort of hate is born because hate mm. is born sometimes through a simple lack of misunderstanding and not being able to be educated about what it is um, and I think a lot of people have a very big misunderstanding of the religion and its teachings um, when if you were to be able to go to some of these um workshops and uh, things like that and educate yourself, you will be very surprised by what you hear if you already had a negative stereotype or if you just wanted to find out more. Mm. Within the higher education specifically, I think one of the things that has to be done is Islamophobia needs to be part of the institutional vocabulary um, and embedded within the code of conduct of everything that it does. It can't just be a small section within the discrimination um, aspect. It has to be embedded in everything for it to be taken seriously and given that weight. Um, and even the term Islamophobia, I think there's also issue in the terminology itself. You know, um, I, I much prefer using the term anti-Muslim uh, hate mm. um, because Islamophobia, the term itself just carries a very negative context, you know, the phobia of it, mm. um, which isn't used in any other religion to describe it. And so when we keep saying that word phobia, 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 subconsciously you know it, it, it's not I'm not the most I'm not comfortable using that word hmm. um, and I think there's uh, there's some research that has gone into is that the best term to use yeah. um, so I think that's also something to take into account so also the focus on what words do we use to describe a phenomenon Absolutely. of in in this case uh, anti-muslim hate right or Absolutely. violence to some extent yeah and also when we talk about this so we've talked about it on a, uh, on a national, uh, in university context, but when we also talk about things like uh, the celebrations, for example, Eid um, or um, Ramadan, which is uh, the month of fasting, um, what is being done institutions to support their students and staff who are going through this? Yeah. Um, is it embedded into their, uh, for a staff who's working, is it embedded into their flexible hours? Um, is it embedded into their annual leave and things like that? So there's plenty of things that can also be taken out of that context to be able to, to use. From a HR perspective, when you have to identify these sorts of things, how are they being identified? How is that information being used? So... Yeah. Lots of things. So not just focusing on experiences of exclusion, but yeah. also actively working on fostering inclusion by these interventions yes. that you mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Jasmine, do you have something to add also to this conversation or how do you feel about, you know, the, the initiatives maybe that are um, being positioned also? Um, and also maybe the question about... Um, um, Islamophobia as a term, right? As a concept. Is this something that we should be critical of? Or is this something that we should maybe embrace? Or what is, what is uh, your perspective on this? 
You know, I echo everything that Abdi just said. (laughs) (laughs) I saw you nodding. Yeah, Yeah. I did. Because, you know, I am very intentional about not using Islamophobia, especially in scholarship work, or even when I have conversation about this. Because when I think about, especially within the U.S. context, about anti-Blackness, anti-Muslim, anti-immigration, these are all intersecting forms of oppression and I think that when you use those terms that way, you make it clear that people are against that identities or these identities. Yeah. Um, so it definitely changes the context, right? It doesn't make it something that people should be afraid of. And I think that similar to what Abdi said, it's not, you don't see it with other religions. You don't see it with other um, racial identities that the phobia part is attached to it. Um, I, I'm glad that you mentioned something about, I think you mentioned like an Islamophobia month or something. Is that right? Yes. Islamophobia awareness month. Awareness month. Okay. So I think for me, we have had on campus like a hijab day. Do you all have that here? Okay. So it's a wear hijab day. And I think it was supposed to be like a beautiful thing that started to be like, okay, what is the experience to be a Muslim for a day, like wearing the hijab and seeing people interact. And then it was an initiative that started after 9-11 to raise awareness. And I think for me, I, I understand the meaning behind it and the reason for it. But I also feel like it's, uh, I can't remember, I can't think of the right word for it because it's, it feels a little performative in a way because the reality is it's after that day, people can take off that job and live their happy lives with their privileges and advantages and no one gets to question them. But for many Muslim women, that is their reality. And for many black Muslim women in America, they are dealing with both, you know, dealing with racism and uh, anti-Muslim sentiments. So their reality is something that can't just be experienced in a day. Um, and I think about what can institutions do. I'm going to be honest with you. I have, you know, I have had the privilege to work in many um, higher education institutions, including UConn and or University of Connecticut. We call it UConn for short. <laughs> and in my whole experience, I have never seen a professor that wore the hijab. I have seen it at a student level, but I think that there's a level of lack of support in many higher education institutions across the United States that don't support faculty who are Muslim, who wear the hijab, who experience microaggressions, racism um, within the classroom environment. And it makes it really hard to go into the classroom and be authentically themselves and support students the best way that they can. Um, so I think that what can colleges do or universities do is start having a conversations about when we look around the room, whose voices are missing and why is it important to include those voices and their experiences and why is it important to see, because we could sit here and, you know, put it on mission statements or, uh, different, you know, pamphlets, diversity pamphlets or university pamphlets for recruitment purposes. But there's a difference if students don't feel that they belong in that institution and that they're supported or that faculty and staff are not supported to be authentically who they are. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful. So also the the reflection of the need for representation 
uh, of role models of people that are being supported and celebrated um, uh, in positions uh, of influence in teaching and doing research, etc., in different ways. Yeah, yeah. Right, Glenn, how is that at uh, the Hague University or maybe in the Dutch context? Um, in your regard, obviously. I think what we especially here in Netherlands need to be vigilant for is um, there's this kind of very toxic and insidious um, Dutch sentiment of Dutch exceptionalism in that this is a country that values liberty, freedom, and it is so accepting. Um, I mean, it's known for being very accepting of queer communities and people of colors, and we accept the refugees. Um, and I think that um, there's this kind of sh shifts us to think that we are um, able to be very secular and objective. Um, and in institutions like uh, the university, um, what that causes is that people think that they are non-discriminatory in every sense. So, um, no, we're not, they're white students, for example, or students at specific intersects of identity don't experience privileges because no, we're objective here. Um, we're a secular uh, institution. Um, when, of course, objectivity um, is not ever achievable in that sense. And I think that's something we need to be very vigilant of. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Um, because then you get um, the same issues that continue to persist in very insidious ways because in our mind, we are being very objective. Or when that's farthest from the case, when you look at the personal stories and experience of students, sometimes you hear very troubling and harrowing um, things. Um, so I think what should be part and parcel of this entire process is um, yes, do all the surveys, do all the research, but you cannot separate that from the experiences that the students have. Um, and cup coupling that with kind of shifting our mindset, mindset in questioning how objective or neutral and accepting we really are in the Dutch uh, society. Yeah, yeah. So specifically, um, also that that narrative about Dutch objectivity, Dutch tolerance, right? That also kind of created that that framework around Dutch identity that is exclusive um, to people from different parts of the world, but specifically also on uh, Muslim communities, right? Is also kind of a way of um, reinforcing that Islamophobia perspective, right? Really, the forceful, the 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 the, the fear, actually, uh, um, to some extent. So it's also kind of challenging me in this conversation to look at it from a different perspective, because uh, this this change of perspective on the word and term Islamophobia and looking at it and how how do we deal with that? How do we acknowledge also the experiences that students bring and listen to the students? Um, and voice those experiences and also acknowledge the different role models that we need um, um, in those uh, different environments. So thank you so much already for this. Um, I'm curious also to, to, to ask you at least uh, uh, one question more, if that's okay with you. <laughs> All right, and that's basically the question. So how, how do you navigate this uh, in, in your own context? What can we learn from you also? So Jasmine, you, you talked about basically doing this um, research as well, right? So is this something that we can learn from um, and, and our listeners can learn from? How do you navigate this topic in research um, and, and being you in that context <laughs> as a researcher? That's a big question. I think 
having the community involved. I think if you don't identify as a Muslim and you don't know Muslims personally, but you want to do research on them, I think it's important to talk to people who practice that faith because we're and in questioning yourself, like, where are you getting that knowledge? So I think for me, when I was doing my research, I only found a very limited amount of research that had intersection identities. It was, to be honest, it was a hundred that I only found, which is very sad and crazy to think that there's so much context that students face um, and so much, like, again, intersection identities of Muslim students, but there's only limited amount of research on their needs. And even within those research that I found, they are among the most ignored group on college campuses where their needs go unheard or kind of unaddressed. So I think that to go back, you know, to what Glenn said earlier in terms of like, you know, we're going to have students who are black. We're going to have students who are, uh, you know, uh, female identifying, or you're going to have students who are immigrants or refugees, and there are going to be so many different parts of their identities that should be supported um, and heard. So I think given a space for those students to be heard, but also don't tokenize them either. So if it's going to be, you know, heard, I think it's important to be honored and followed up in terms of like act action strategies of, okay, what are we going to do about it and follow up? Um, but did I answer your question or did I just go on a rant? <laughs> <laughs> no, for sure. I think, I think it's interesting to, to, to reflect on it from the perspective of not about us without us, yes, right? That's also something that I hear you say in your perspective and, you know, talking to students, being mindful of what we're asking of people and, and, and doing research to this, it's important to keep this in mind. Yeah. And it's a lot of emotional labor, right? I think it's a lot to to ask someone to be vulnerable. It's a lot to ask them to be the one to teach you. Um, But I think that students, as well as faculty and staff, do recognize why it's so important. And I think that they do feel valued when, when people go out and ask them, especially institutional leaders, ask them, like, how do we support you? How do we support your success? I think they, feel, they, they honor that, but again, it's the following up. It's like, okay, what are you going to do about it? We already told you our um, issues and ways that we could possibly, or what we need to succeed, but following up is important. And holding yourself accountable as an institution um, is definitely uh, vital to, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's also uh, something that I hear, uh, that I just heard you say as well, um, Abdi, on the one hand, you know, focusing on getting that data, getting insights into those experiences, lived experiences from marginalized communities, um, but specifically also uh, Muslim communities um, in your institution, but also, you know, having a support system, celebrating that, but also accountability on the other hand, right? We cannot um, just do one thing and not do the other thing to some extent. Is that kind of how I... um, uh, how I listen to your uh, to your approach to this. So, and and how can I ask you, uh, Abdi? How do you position yourself in this in this context? Uh, what can we learn from you? Well, I think one of the one of the big things is that it is not always the responsibility of the identity of that person 
to rely on that person to always give you the teaching. So, for example, if somebody is black, uh, you sh- you know, it's not their responsibility to always have to educate somebody else on their life, their identity, their experience as a black person. Uh, and it's the same from a religion context, from a gender context, from a um, um, race context, whichever context it is. Uh, it places a large burden, uh, as you said, on that person to share that, to share that story. And it's a very personal story. Um, and I read a, a quote yesterday, which said, you know, not everybody deserves to hear my story. Um, you know, because it's a, it's a lot, it has a lot of emotional weights full of very real memories in which has impacted and shaped that person's lives. And so I think when we think about the context of what can people do if we were to put into different layers, you know, so if you're talking your average, uh, person, uh, from the streets, educating yourself, it's the best thing you can do. Um, in, in the same way that you would do that for any other thing that you want to learn, if you want to learn how to drive, you educate yourself and you learn how to drive. Um, in this context, and that education can come from two different ways. It can come from either asking people who are open and willing enough to share that with you and also from doing your research as well. Um, and the context of research is also very important because where you do that research and how you actually take in that research matters. You know, I'll give you orange juice as a weird example. You know, we all know the benefits of orange juice. It's very good for you. It's a great thing to have in the morning. Yet, if I want to be a pessimist, I can look at, I can say bad things about orange juice and believe that the one thing that it may, the one person that I may have said this and this and this about it and believe that that is the context. So context is everything here. And I think with this is also, if your information of what you're getting from a religion, any religion or anything in, in general is simply from just the television, for example, where we know full well there is a bias against um, uh, the, 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 the religion of Islam on there, then it's going to be very difficult for you to have the right understanding, the factual understanding, because you have a very biased view already based on a biased narrative that you're already given. Mm. Um, so it's also not just re- research, but where you get that research from is also incredibly important from an institutional sort of level within higher education, I've sort of already said about looking at the policies, the way that you reports it, the things that the university does to actively um, make sure that, and safeguarding, and also from a well-being perspective, um, not just, it's like, not just, you know, sort of like the awareness week, because the awareness week a month is what it is. It's just to get people within that time span over a month or a week. It is not enough. It needs to be something institutionally embedded, as I said at the beginning, throughout all of its policies and code and conduct, not just something that sort of is done to celebrate it as a month. And from a national scale as well, um, from a governmental side, it's important to, when we look at, um, when young Muslims look up and they see who is in our, you know, who's running our country um, and the and, and, and the parliament and, and, and the government and where do we see figures who can openly express their religion without being subjected to discrimination from the public or, for, or from even other senior leaders within within that political party. I think it's also very important to look at what we do there, how they handle the complaint systems, how they are also, uh, what kind of image they give off in terms of, you know, if you have people making bad remarks nationally on TV, it doesn't raise the best questions, does it, when somebody is uh, looking at hiding their religion because they're afraid that because if the if other people who are in much higher um, governmental positions are perpetuating a stereotype that, you know, um, Islam is something to 
be cautious of, mm -hmm. it gives you even more worry about your own identity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Glenn. Um, I think... Um, what can we learn from you in this, <clears throat> and on this topic and how do you deal with it in, in practice, right? Um, in practice, um, I think it's important uh, in the work that we do as researchers um, in where, at least in my work, um, I hear a lot of stories um, and I also feel like when you ask that people to uh, do that labor, that, to get shoulder that emotional burden, yeah. that you have to, you have a responsibility to those people. But um, also I try to drive research and the work and our efforts in a way that actually has a meaningful and significant material impact mm. for the communities that we're trying to serve. In that sense, um, as a student, I've been asked many times to come and share my experience. So I'm sharing these painful stories over and over again. But what does happen? Yeah. Uh, someone yeah. uses it for their research, whatever that means. Yeah. So it does nothing um, I guess immediately to ease that burden or to have a significant impact on the persons that you are doing research for and with. Um, so I think one of the most simple and effective ways, for example, is compensating students, which is something that we really value and do. And another thing is um, the thing that I warn for that we have to be vigilant about um, with the research, we have to constantly question the work that we do and how we do it and see if if it's ethical the way that we're doing it and also if we're really going about it in the best way possible. And of course, you can only do that if you do research with the people that you're trying to help, in this case, the Muslim community at The Hague University. So I think just um, the way you conduct your research is very important and how you handle the persons you are doing the research for and with. Mm. So... Understanding all three of you, I hear a kind of similarity to possible solutions and things that we can learn from your approaches, right? And that is that we need to be mindful of what it means, first of all, to um, be doing something about this. And if we ask out um, and if we basically ask students or people, it can also be staff, obviously, um, and to share their experiences, then we need to be able to share also what we're going to do to change those experiences. And that's something that I kind of hear in all of three of your stories. It's important that we are mindful that this comes with, with pain and with trauma and that it is, you know, and Jasmine, you worded as um, emotional labor, as a concept also important that we need to give something back. Glenn, you also said this really reflect on, you know, what are we actually giving students um, or are we just going to ask them to share and not give anything back in return? All right. Thank you. I think that's a, a wonderful a tip for sure for, for people that want to, you know, work on the topic of Islamophobia or in this case, I would like to suggest maybe to switch the term to uh, anti-Muslim uh, hate and discrimination. Um, so I think it's also very interesting to have that conversation with you uh, to see what we can do more. Um, and I really want to thank you so much for having this conversation uh, with me and with each other. Um, are there some last things that you would like to add before we you know, stop this recording? Some things that we forgot that you really need to mention in this space. I just think that if you're, if you're someone who identifies as a Muslim, 
I think it's important to know uh, whichever country that you're you're in. Um, if it's political, uh, for example, if it's within the higher educational context, if you're a student, um, first of all, don't be afraid to have these difficult conversations because, you know, every every place has a different journey and everyone's at a different time in terms of how far they've come towards uh, addressing um, anti-Muslim hate. And not everyone starts off on the same line and not everybody's currently at the same line. So first of all, don't be afraid to have those conversations. And also making sure that you can access the support that you need as well, not just um, when it comes to having those difficult conversations, but if you have been subject to any form of anti-Islam um, hate as well. Um, and I think also making sure that you know how, to, you can, how you can report these things um, as well uh, is, is incredibly important because many people who have had some form of discrimination um, against their religion with this simply choose not to, not to go and, um, and, and make a complaint because they believe either nothing will happen or uh, that the system for making that complaint is broken. And if everybody continues to, 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 to do that, we're not going to move forward. And, you know, there's lots of work being done in, in uh, you know, we're at a conference now where we're simply having these conversations to put things into motion, to have actual, real, equitable outcomes. And so the only way that that wheel can be fully sort of come back into the full circle is if we can have uh, the honesty of having everybody very fair in terms of when it comes to actually challenging and also reporting it when it happens as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, that's a really great point. And I really want to add, um, I'm always reminded of like Malcolm, or not Malcolm, Martin Luther King um, quote in terms of like injustice anywhere is a threat to justice. Um, and I think that it's important when I think about the Muslim community, Muslim students, in terms of not being afraid to be authentically themselves and speak in terms of issues that they face on their college campuses, as well as within their community, but also build solidarity with other folks, right? Just because, you know, a Muslim may not identify as black doesn't mean what the issues are impacting the black community is not our issues. They are indeed our issues. And I think it's so important to, to be there and it's important to be a voice for those forms of oppressions and injustices. Um, so I, I, that's my biggest uh, advice is just build solidarity with folks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, to see where there are um, maybe alliances uh, to be made to um, amongst different marginalized communities and send. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I'm glad you used the word alliances. That's kind of what I wanted to add on as well. Um, again, touching upon the emotional uh, labor and burden of this um, and the heaviness of sharing these stories and experiences oftentimes in where you have no direct benefit of it. Um, oftentimes long-term where it, it likely will be beyond your generation. Um, at uni. Also, don't, um, my advice is as well um, as a person of color at a university, a queer person of color, um, sometimes it's okay to just choose you and not feel guilty for not wanting to do that labor because it is labor, it is heavy. Um, it's okay to choose yourself. And also, there's a lot of power in organizing amongst yourself. So don't wait on the institution to change. Build alliances, build coalitions with your community within the school and usually 
Um, this is unfortunately not always the case, but there is someone who does care. And if you find those people and if you align yourself with those people inside and outside of the university, you will be able to make um, sometimes small changes, but change nonetheless. Um, and you will also have a community which with which you can share um, not just burdens um, and um, labor, but also joy. You can also have moments of celebration. You can also have moments of community rest. And that is also important. Yeah. Thank you so much also for that addition and all three of you um, for this conversation. But most importantly, you know, for the work that you do, keep on doing this beautiful work. Um, and I wish you all the luck in the rest of your process. Thank all you right? so much. It's been a pleasure. Right. Bye. Thank you.